Hello and welcome back everybody to the Ortho Talk podcast. It has been about one month since we last recorded and the reason for that is that I did not have Wi-Fi at my hotel that could put up a podcast. So we are back. We have a very special guest this week, Dr. Ken Lamb. Ken is a fifth year resident in Galveston. Ken has earned the nickname, What Will He Say Next?, and it's really because of what it sounds like. He's kind of a loose cannon sometimes. So it's a very, very fun podcast. So we, we talk about basically uh, residency and reflections on that and whether people ever stop telling you what to do, uh, losing sleep over complications, why do people fail oral boards, having a kid in residency and whether that actually makes you a worse resident or not, um, what the trauma job market is like right now. And then we finished the podcast talking about a very special story uh, from Ken's residency about how he almost got charged with kidnapping once. So take a listen. I think you guys will like it. And without further ado, Ken Lamb. Hey, can we time out? All right. All good dudes. Stop what you're doing. This is time out. This is the OrthoTalk podcast. Today we are doing a real conversation with an illustrious guest, Surgeons today are Asad Khalid and Jay Chen, antibiotics, ANSEF, of course, what do we even ask? Fire risk, high due to lit conversations and explosive topics. Any questions or concerns? Nope. All right, we can go. Incision. Hey, welcome back to the Ortho Talk podcast. It's been a couple week hiatus. Uh, a couple months? Because of, of, of Mo here. Uh, we have an awesome guest. Uh, Ken Longdonger Lamb himself. <laughs> He's a chief resident at UTMB, uh, one, one of my peoples, and uh, of East Asian descent. So it's cool to have him on. Um, Mo, first, before we get started, you have some apologizing to do. Yeah, I need to I need to say sorry to everyone, like the five people that listen to this thing, because I've been, I've been living in a hotel for two to three weeks while I waited for my house to close. And the internet like could barely survive a phone call, much less a Zoom meeting. So that's where I've been. That's why there hasn't been any podcast uh, recently. So to all the five people that listen to this, I'm sorry. Five people, thanks to you now. Yeah, no, now we're now we're down to five. <laughs> all right, all right. So uh, Ken, you're you're a chief resident now, man. This this is awesome. You're halfway through. You're you're on your way. Um, looking back on residency. Just what are your general thoughts about it, about the whole process? How's it been for you? Uh, residency has been, like, I think every, everybody has it. It's, uh was exciting at first. And it got <laughs> was it? <laughs> humbling, humbling. And then at, at, at the end of it, it's, uh, it, it's pretty, it's pretty grueling in a sense, not maybe because of the work, but just because of the mental fatigue of having to, you're 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 constantly told that you have to think for yourself but everybody else tells you to follow their direction kind of thing so there's always that constant pull i think i tell this to everybody all the junior residents uh i don't know the language barriers here and the language but resident i see residency a lot like fornicating with sandpaper it's excruciating but you still want to finish um, so that's <laughs> <laughs> And that's why we brought Ken on the podcast. Right. What's he going to say next? Hold on, you said that's, you, you, that's you said something. You said something before that that like about people bossing you around, but you trying to think for yourself, and like 
that happened to me today. Like it, it just totally ruined my whole day with like this, this PCP sent me this patient that she wanted a bone biopsy on and I wouldn't do it because he was totally asymptomatic and like had full motion. It wasn't even tender over where the osteo was. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to make an incision on this guy just to do it. And she like basically chewed me out over the phone. And I was like, look, I sent him to him for a bone biopsy, but you're not going to do it. And I don't want to put him on antibiotics if it's not MRSA, which you, you had a wound culture showing it was MRSA. Like just put him on antibiotics. So, well, antibiotics have complications. Like, yeah, so does surgery and putting some old guy to sleep just to cut his arm open for no reason. So uh, figure it out. So it doesn't really end. That's the moral of the story. People are always going to tell you what to do. And <laughs> it doesn't get better. I think I don't know. I, I I think it does get a little better, you know. Now that I'm I'm the emperor. Yeah, well, it, oh, wait, it gets better in the sense that you could tell people no and yeah. not really care, and not have to worry well, about someone else like looking over your back. But yeah, yeah, people I, are still gonna try to tell you what to do. I'm 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 a lot. I'm, I feel a lot more free, you know, in terms of that. Because as a resident, you're always thinking, "What does my attending want?" You're not really thinking, "What do I want?" And then now that you're the attending, that, that gets a lot better. You know, I no longer think, you know, what does the attending want? For the first few days, it was kind of weird. I, I did have that mentality. All right, what's the attending want? And then I'm like, shoot, I'm the attending. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was kind of, it was liberating for, for me at least. Don't so. you don't you think that's a blessing and a curse, though? Because, yeah, you get to live with your decisions, but you also have to live with your decisions. Oh, yeah. Patients don't really go away when you mess up. Like by now, what, we're six, seven months into it. Like we both, we both had complications already. Right. Like, and those patients still show up never. every day. Never. never right. Never. never. I have. Well, I have. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, man, you still have to live with those things. I had, yeah. wait, I'm not going to, without destroying HIPAA, I had one complication that was like pretty decent size. I mean, the outcome was fine, but it was pretty decent size. And I just wanted this guy to heal and kind of erase from my memory. But then he came back to me and like wanted me to look at his other shoulder or like, and I'm like, why are you back here? I, I don't want a constant reminder of my failures. Just please <laughs> leave me alone. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, it's, it's great because you get to live with your decisions, but also you have to sleep with your decisions. For sure. For sure. I think that's uh, added stress. You know, I, I find myself more stressed on clinical days than OR days, actually, because you start looking ahead to your schedule. Yeah. And you're like, what's yeah, going to come yeah, in today? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, God, I hope he's healing. I hope that wound looks better. So, did you so have I, that? Did you have that stress in residency at all? No, clinic days were great in residency. They weren't no, not just not just clinic like, stress, but like like complication stress. You know, in the end, I did sometimes. Very, very. There, there were some people with some of our attendings. I mean, re recently Lindsay got back in the game after a year hiatus. Oh, kind of like the podcast. <laughs> yeah and uh, a lot i think that, that doing those cases those gives me stress especially if they're bigger cases uh because you you like like i think you said it in previous podcasts you kind of control a little more you're not you're not just there you're not just there uh observing um, or something you you he, there's going to be enough rope for you to hang yourself on and you will hang if things don't go right, right? And that, that's just, that's a level of guilt that I've, I don't know, I've, Mo, you and I have experienced with a certain patient before and uh, yeah. a couple patients actually. And so that's uh, that's what, that's the only time I've really been scared as a resident. Yeah, there were yeah. some times where you're kind of put on an island and 
you know, I remember doing some revision, revision joints and the night before I would prep like multiple hours. Cause you know, you're, you're kind of on an Island sometimes and you're just, uh, you know, it is kind of up to you to some extent. So those, those are stressful, but I, honestly, as a resident, when, when there were complications, it's easier mentally to separate yourself from, from the guilt at times, because even if you were the primary surgeon, like I, in the end, it's not your name on it. You know, should you have been the primary surgeon? Yeah, that can be, that can be argued. So I think you, you do your best as a resident and just live with it as attending. I don't know. You can't get away from happen. At least I can't get away from them. Yeah. Keep coming back. You're married. You're married to your complications. Yeah. 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 So I it's just. Like herpes. Herpes. <laughs> What's he going to say next? What's he going to say next? <laughs> It's definitely it hits different as an attending and you i spend a lot of time um probably more time than i should just looking at my clinic patients and just kind of hoping they 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 do well so it's definitely a different different game but you, know, you, you have more freedom you know what the weirdest thing for me has been is like i thought i was pretty good with the indications for stuff but most of the, like 80 to 90 percent of the things i see don't fit an indication and i'm just like uh Dude. what do you do here like, is say, that is that like yours i'm 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 one week in a board collection so I, i'm starting early and i was i was going to say like you know orthopedics is not black and white obviously you have a young guy with a femur fracture for example you have to oh, fix dude. it yeah the trauma the trauma is like the easiest stuff exactly that's that's the easy stuff but the stuff that comes in where there's multiple options you know, I'm, I'm second guessing myself quite a bit and having a little bit of paranoia during my board collections because I, I could do the surgery. It's, it's not wrong to do it, but there's a lot of other options before I get there. It's not it's not always black and white. So so right now that liberate liberated feeling I was talking about earlier is kind of gone because now I'm kind of thinking, what, what do my board people want me to do? <laughs> so it's Isn't uh, it crazy how we have a whole test design based off what a few people think you should do and not off like what reality really is yeah yeah it's not a fun period of time so that's that's medicine that's all medicine and academic or or professional medical advancement is based off of it's basically off of old white people making other old making everybody else fit into their standards so that's just but that's the nature of living in western society yeah, we were talking about what were we talking about, Mo? That secret society of uh, oh, the ortho deep state. Or, the ortho deep state. Yeah, yeah. the ortho and, deep state. You're aware of the ortho deep state, right? <laughs> that sounds like you are. Nobody knows yeah. who they are. That's the no that's the problem. They are. But they they run all the ortho deep state. They, they run everything. They, they make people bend to their will. So yeah, the ortho deep state. So. They they form all these indications and everything, all these rules that you can't do this and you can only do this. It's it's weird, man. Real yeah. life's not like that at all, and you see it in the community. Like a lot of these community guys will do some weird stuff that probably is fine, but you're just like, "What? <laughs> what are you doing here?" But I'm sure they, I'm sure it ends up okay. It's just not like textbook. And I guess when you've only been fed the textbook for six years, then everything outside of the textbook looks weird. Communications loosen up a lot more in the community. You know, and we'll see a lot of the people that are sent to us from the community. And we're always like, what? But these people are in practice and, and well-respected and probably good surgeons. So I don't know. So what's board collections been like? Um, 
you know, questioning my indications all, all the time. It's just been, uh, it's weird. Before board collections, I was kind of like, you know, I wish I could get busier. And uh, now I'm one week into boards and like my first week I've had like multiple patients come in demanding surgery, not, have not had any non-op. I'm like, oh, not so much chance to get busy, but I can't. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting situation. I'm ready for it to be done. Only like seven more months. So uh, the good thing is, like you're saying, traumas are usually indicated. So I'm, I'm doing plenty of fracture work. And well, trauma is good because it's so like historically backed that almost everything has a classification and something you could justify based on your classification. And I mean, like the hardware choices are usually not that difficult, right? Like you put a nail in a hip or you put a plate on a forearm. Like it's not, unless you just do a terrible job with it, it's not that bad, but like for me, a lot of the sports stuff, <clears throat> like for example, subacromial decompressions, right? Like the evidence is, you, there's level one evidence showing that it works. And then there's AOS, like recommended guidelines saying don't do it. So you could find evidence both ways, but if you come with a bunch of subacromial decompressions on your board collections, you'll probably get some weird looks over there. Like, why are you doing this for patients? So I don't know. Like I, I've seen patients get better with it, but I've seen patients get better with PT too. Um, so those are the ones that are like total gray area. Like, what do you do? And if you use common sense, like send them to PT for a little bit and if they don't get better, do surgery. Like that's usually what I do, but that might turn some heads like on oral board examination. So I, I don't know. There's some stuff like you're doing isolated, isolated, isolated. Yeah. For just for impingement, right? Like, like partial thickness tear with just some impingement in the shoulder. And like, you know, if they fail six weeks of PT in a shot, like you, it's technically indicated. You can go do an acromioplasty, clean up the bursa and check the cuff out, cut the biceps. And a lot of them will get better with that. But I don't know. I know, I know some, uh, some shoulder elbow guys are in our class were, Saying like, you know, I wouldn't do that on your board collections just because it's so wishy-washy. Um, there's not a lot of evidence to support it, but I don't know. The literature is all over the place with everything. You can find some evidence to support almost whatever you do. But yeah. that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, one surgery that I told myself I wouldn't do a lot of starting out, it was a plantar fascia tarsal tunnel release. Because yeah. it's, it's, even if they do better, it takes a long time for them to get better and it's not a super reliable surgery. That being said, I've done two of them. And both patients are doing awesome. It's crazy. Like they're doing, yeah. I saw one today, they're doing awesome. And, uh, but that's the surgery where my board collections, I might not pull the trigger on that. And it's not because I don't believe, it's not because I don't believe it works. It's because not everyone else believes it works. So it's just one of those things where you have to second guess yourself. And But then you I know. like, I also question, like, what are they really looking for? Are they really looking for whether you're doing some of these operations that some people think don't work? Or is it more towards like, are you just not doing safe surgery? You know what I mean? Because the, the boards have such a high pass rate. And it's hard to tell. I, I doubt not everyone or I, I think not everyone is as careful as we are talking about with their indications for surgeries. Um, I think the question is why do people fail? And I don't think it's because you choose to do the wrong surgeries. I think it's because one, you don't defend what you do. And two, you're just doing not safe surgery. That's pretty clear. And you don't have that. You don't have a, I don't know yet. You come up, you come across bad on the oral part of the examination. It's an oral presentation. So it's just how you come off. And that's for me, what 
scares me considerably about oral boards because I don't say things the right way. And that's just, it, and that's 96% of it. Just yeah. like looking at, looking at the UTMB alumnus who have passed and who have not passed and looking at what cases they have sent in. It's just like fracture conference, right? If yeah. you, if you sound confident, people won't really question you. <laughs> I mean, I'm like one of our alumnus has, uh, had an SCR in their board collection did, um, did a proximal humerus fracture on like an 84 year old or 81 year old yeah. um, and it passed, you know, and then another right. alumnus failed with doing this because they pulled a, some pins on a supracondylar humerus early yeah. and they, they'd had like uh, complications with a grade three open both one forearm, which I think are all very indicated procedures, but it's like, um, I don't know. I think, I think it's exactly like you said, it's just it's how you say it. And then we've had people who leave screws out of the hips, they pass, right? So it's it's all over. And I think it's how you, how confident you are and how, yeah. how suave you are. And I think that's probably, I don't know, just, just looking at our own little cohort of data, obviously I don't have any, that'd be interesting to, 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 to pull, uh, I guess the, uh, the people who examine oral boards and just say like, why did you fail this case? Yeah, like the most common reasons for failure. I right doubt here, it's I, I doubt it's because people are doing isolated subacromial decompressions. I hear like, documentation like, is is a huge such a yeah. huge part of it. When I, I, bet, I bet that's Dola, a big thing too. Just, yeah, he's the only thing Dola really emphasized to me was like document everything. I was like, can I operate on people without trying non-op? He's like, yeah, but you just got to <laughs> document why you did it. So <laughs> I'm like, oh okay. So but so what do you then. did you did you change your documentation at all? Um, no, from, from the time I started, I've, I've been pretty good about documenting. I think I always put an addendum in the end of every clinic note, yeah. just, just summarizing my own thoughts. So yeah, that's the got their note and I just put like a paragraph in the end about what yeah, I think. Going on. That's really, I mean, that's basically the same thing I do. I don't have residents to write my notes, but like, you know, I have my pretty standard templates for different body parts with all my exam stuff. That's pretty much the same throughout, but like in the assessment and plan, especially now with the new, uh, new coding stuff. I'll literally just dictate a paragraph on like who the patient was, what they presented with and what my thought process is on the treatment plan and what my next step would be. So that one, when I go through and like, I see them in six weeks, I just go back and read my paragraph and I know what, I know what I was thinking. And then two, like I can actually just put my thoughts into words. That's more than just bullet points. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like that's probably pretty safe documentation. Yeah. I guess with the new ENMs, with the new ENM coding, I guess uh, as far as boards is concerned, you know, you don't necessarily have to put in like a past medical history and surgical history. Not at all. Uh, and that all that's useless. However, I guess that I don't know. That would give me a little bit of anxiety. Like on the boards front, they're like, "Oh, you're doing some elective procedure, whatever it may be," and you haven't documented that you reviewed all their past medical history, or like, "Oh, if you're doing like a." I don't know if you're doing a total shoulder on somebody and they said, Oh, by the way, you didn't, you didn't check that they had COPD and you decided to do an interscalene block or like, what, yeah. what's the deal? Like that, all of that just like, is like added, you know, you know, like in reality, you're going to check one of those things. And, but I don't know where that plays in now with, with this, with this, like for me, I'm definitely, my notes are definitely shorter, much more concise, but I don't know if that's a good habit to go to have going into what you guys are about to go into. Going through. Uh, I have a I have a dot phrase. Um, and Ken, look if you you know when you're on my service, you'll see 
So I had, all of my patients I signed up for surgery, I put in my own addendum at the end. It's a dot phrase, uh, .jc pre-op. And it's literally a checklist of like diabetes, smoking, uh, uh, comorbidities, like anticoagulation. And basically it's just a reminder for myself to check these off before I sign them up for surgery. Yeah, I, I put that on, on all my surgical cases from clinic that I, that I sign up. And it's been, it's been helpful for me because you know, I've got like pulses, I check pulses and just, just stuff like that. So, so I, I have, helpful. I have something similar, but that goes in my HPI for all my new patients is, you know, I, I have the smoking on there. So I have diabetes on there with the last A1C. So it reminds myself to check it. And then I have like an other section, but then on top of that, like for, I, I bring patients back for a pre-op visit, especially if it's more than a month. Yeah. And once they, once they get all their clearances, so we just make sure everything's in, checked off. And it's kind of the same thing where I'll, I'll have like, we go through their anticoagulation status, we go through their smoking, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, but the other, the other thing with the ENM coding stuff now is that you are, um, you are allowed to have a non-physician do all that stuff as long as you document that you reviewed their uh, their documentation, basically. So the way we do it is whoever rooms the patient um, will do their own separate note with with all that stuff. Honestly, they do most of the HPI. They do all the um, you know medical or meds, past medical, past surgical, all that stuff. Social history, they'll get the right-hand dominant, left-hand dominant stuff, occupation, all that. And uh, all I have to do is say that I reviewed their note and uh, that, I mean, it's not, it's not counting towards any coding at this point, but it does count towards fulfilling whatever criteria they want for that stuff. So um, as far as the coding goes, you could just put that in your note and just say you reviewed someone else's note. So it could be anyone? Could, could, could it be a dog? It, it could be a dog. <laughs> or a physician or his designee. Or a designee. All right. <laughs> Uh, at least I think so. I don't know. Maybe, hopefully I'm not wrong about that and steering you the wrong way, but I'm yeah. pretty sure that's, that's what I heard. All right. You're going to fail. And I'm going to pass. <laughs> All right. Ken, um, let's talk about life changes. You've recently had a, had a life change in, in your life and um, the, with the addition of, of baby lamb chop. So <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, I don't know congrats, if you guys Ken. know, but Ken, Ken is a dad. Congrats. So, um, how has it changed kind of your, your mindset and work-life balance, just kind of how things change in your life, if, if at all. It's changed a lot, a lot. It's, uh, I don't know, you, you, I just never realized how selfish I was until you have a kid and then you're just like, man, I was an asshole. <laughs> it's like, I, 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 in theory, I realized that like, once you have a kid, I mean, like you're number three, like the, everything in your life is useless, like moot compared to what your child is. And, and like, you can't, you put them number one because they didn't consent to being born. You know, you put them here. It's your fault that they're here. So like, you can't, you can't like bail out on them or anything like that. Uh, and for me, you know, y'all, y'all know, I like being in cases like as much as possible. And that's been like a huge, yeah. for me, it's like, I don't know, the pool, the pool is, is different than ever before. Yeah. So for all, all the, all the listeners who don't know Kenny Lamb, he's, he's one of the hardest working residents that I've ever met. And he's probably scrubbed more cases than anyone in our class 
put together times times five. Yeah. He's he's always he's always in the hospital, always scrubbing cases, learning learning as much as he can, and, and and being useful. I'll tell you one time, you know, I take a call at one of our hospitals, and at this hospital, uh, I'm not supposed to have residency consults. I'm supposed to see him myself, so I go up there to see my consult, and Ken Lamb calls me. He's like, "Oh, I know this is consult that you have. I'm on the way to see it." <laughs> I'm like, "What, really? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll see it myself, but but you know, Ken's always." got his eye on what's going on so um it's, it's been interesting now that he's had his kid and and he's reflecting upon it so yeah i don't know ken it's, it's, it's good for you man i'm happy for you yeah it's a it's it's different it's like basically like now i've never been one to like look at the clock and say i need to get be home but now it's like that now i understand uh yeah, yeah. Like I, need, I need to go home did you take any paternity leave I took uh so she was born on the 24th of December so that was kind of nice hmm. and I was on I was on an elective service I was an arthroplasty so nice. there wasn't that much going on uh like those next couple weeks so it was it was it was very happenstance it ended up being okay like I took like a week off but I only missed like a few days um and so yeah I, I didn't take that much I know Max just had his kid last Friday he's taking a week off as well um Nice. How's your wonder, uh, Yeah, I wonder. I mean, typically the culture. I've talked about this before on the podcast. But the cultures take a week off, so for, for at least for guys. And uh, you know, I don't know if that should be. No one really wants to see more than a week because you feel like you're letting people down, and you don't really want to miss work. Um, but it does put. I I don't know. I, I've seen it put a strain on the family. You know, because a week's actually not that long. So I don't know. I don't know if that can be changed somehow, or or neither of y'all have family here, right? No, uh, no. I mean, my family's in Hong Kong. Yeah. So yeah, it's just you two taking care of the baby. Yeah, I mean, they, their parents came for a week. Yeah, um, that was really helpful. I think. Uh, oh, it's also with COVID that changes things, right? Because uh, it's very isolating for the person who's staying at home. Mm-hmm. Eileen's staying at home with helping the kid out and it's extremely isolating. Like she's already been working from home for six plus months. And now you're, now you have a kid and you feel even more of this stress that you don't want to expose this kid to anything else. And so it's like, I feel guilty going, waking up and going to work every day because, you know, I love my, I love doing surgery. I hate, I maybe shouldn't say that. I hate where careful things are. What's he going to say? Uh, but I, nonetheless, I love my, I love what I do. And so I wake up and I get to interact with people and interact with patients and I love it. And, but my wife doesn't have the same thing. I go home, my wife is exhausted because this, this monster has been crying for every, every few, two hours and not, not stopping. And it's just, uh, you know, you feel guilty for that. But at the same time, then you feel guilty for like not studying and not preparing for enough cases. It's just, it's, it's weird. I don't know, Jay, I don't know how you did it. Um, I don't know how any of the any of the people do it during I don't get kids during residency. You know, is is it selfish as you say you were or whatever? I think you've you've seen you've seen a lot. You know, you're a lot more selfless than than I was as as a father in residency. I was not. uh, You're right. You you get this guilty pull to be at home, and when you're at home, you're supposed to your mind's supposed to be on the family and, and to help out. I was not the best at that. You know, like I when I was at home, I would. I would do studying and the kids would kind of pull at me and um, I would still try to find ways to study. And it's not, 
you know, I don't think I did the best for, for my family, you know, when I was a resident because I, I kind of emphasize work a lot. So, you know, it's probably hanging out with me on call. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah hanging out going stuff. back to the gym at 9 p.m. After everyone goes to, go to the gym. Well, 9 p.m. is fine because everyone's asleep. So that's, that's my, that's J time right there. But you got to find some personal time as well. But um, I was, I was really lucky. My wife's very, family oriented and uh, she's able to take care of a lot of it but but you're absolutely right man like honestly work is not it it's it's enjoyable a lot of it a lot of what we do is fun interacting with people sometimes uh, with you guys yeah it's not always but you know surgeries surgery is fun which is why we went into surgery but then you come home and uh you know just like you said your wife's been at home with, with two kids screaming all day and then she throws the kids to you and you're kind of exhausted from work but she's exhausted from being home all day so it's it's definitely challenging. I think having family help helps a lot as well. But uh, but I, don't know, I was never as hard of a worker as you two, Ken. So you know your your cases are case numbers are probably the highest. So so that's the thing as well. It's more stressful having having a kid or your intern year. Oh, intern year was nothing. Okay, second year. And second year was nothing. All right, third year. None of it, it was very it, stressful. It's, it's just like you just show up and do like. All right, tired. Me- general, mentally like, tired. Medicine in general is so easy because you just show up. Yeah. It's, it. it's a different, it's not, residency is not stressful in the same way. Like basically if you, if you put in the hours, you know, you'll do fine pretty much. It's not so much of a guilty thing, you know, like it, the stress that comes with having kids and not being able to be there is, is more of a, a guilty thing. And you can try to block it out in your mind and, and get through. And I did that for a good portion of residency, uh, which is not ideal for my family. But um, but it's more, more of that. And then also, when you're with your kids, a lot of it is not, it's not as exciting as, as doing crazy surgery. And a lot of it, when you're, especially when they're small, they cry, they poop, and you, you have to be there mentally for them but it's not very stimulating mentally. And I think for orthopedic surgeons, we're used to being stimulated mentally. So it's more of a, it's almost like more of a drain in some ways uh, than it is at work. But that being said, Ken, Ken's right that we do have to, we have to put in that family time and it's kind of our obligations. It's, it's our fault, as he says, it's our fault. <laughs> that they uh, it's like, I, I was talking to Creed about this and I said like, this is the time where you just absorb and just, accept the suck because like you know as a surgeon you you have the the ability to essentially in the or you control you control you have full almost near full control of the situation that and if something a complication happens or something's not right if you are adept and you have studied appropriately you, you can change the situation and make things better if there's a patient that has an issue you can make things better however and you know the fact that a kid needs to feed every two hours and you don't, I don't have the anatomy to allow myself to help my, my wife. You just have to absorb the fact that I can't do anything. I just have to sit there and just say that that's all I can do, but that's what I have to do. Like, and I, even though you don't like doing it, you just got to accept the fact that you just have to be there. And then also the fact that most surgeons are very time hungry. So they're like, man, I could be, I have to do something else right now, but yeah. Exactly. We're, we're in the back of our minds. We're like, I got these 10 other tasks to do. Can this baby go to sleep so I can get to my other task? You know, so it's a different kind of thing. I do want to say, um, I remember, I always remember this. When I was a medical student, 
Uh, I did an away rotation, and there was a resident who had a family as well, and, and small kids. And you know, I talked to him about it, and he always he told me this. I, I never forgot it. And he basically said, um, he said, you know, you can be, you know, I won't, I won't be the best resident there ever was. I won't be the best dad there ever was. I won't be the best, um, I won't be the best husband there ever was. Um, but at the same time, like you go into residency, if you have a family already, you go in and you, you accept that, you know, it's impossible to balance all three at the same time and you accept it and you give yourself grace for, for not being the best at, at those things. So he's like, yeah, I don't have 10 publications, you know, like other residents do, but you know what I've got, he's, I've got obligations I need to deal with and, and you just accept that. So for me, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the best dad you know, being a resident, I wasn't probably not, I didn't maximize my capabilities as a resident. I definitely wasn't the best husband at all times. Um, but you kind of realize it's temporary. You, you have a mindset that you do your best and you kind of accept what, what you can give. And, um, that helps you get through, I think, just giving yourself the grace to not, not be the best in every aspect of life. So, so has that, has that changed this year for you? I, yeah, I think it even started changing in fellowship. I had a lot more time in fellowship um, just to be with my family. Yeah, I didn't have call other than OIT weekend. And, you know, fellowship is different than residency where you don't feel like you have to you have to get through. You have to impress people. When you're a, when you're a fellow, as you know, you, you've already made it. You're just there for additional training. Um, so the, some of that pressure is off and you're able to just spend more time with family, especially when COVID hit. Then as an attending, the schedule is, is a lot more free. Uh, at least at least, I have control over my schedule in a lot of ways that I didn't have as a resident. So, for example, if I don't want to post three cases on a day and I want to just come home in the afternoon, I'm not busy enough where my days are filled to the to the fullest. So I'll just post one or two cases if I want my afternoon to, to do other stuff. And on the other hand, if I'm on call and I know I might have a hip fracture that comes in, I, I can plan it and that's that's my schedule. My resident has no has no say over when I take call, you know, whether or not I have, when I'm gonna add on a hip fracture. Um, so so I have a lot more freedom in terms of controlling my own schedule that I didn't used to have. And that's been very, that's been good for my family. I, I'm able to come home at a more consistent time. So, so it's been better, you know, for those residents, I think uh, who have families and are, are struggling a bit, I think there's there's hope at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Oh, well, you talked about stressors during residency. What were, what were the things that stressed you out a lot? I mean, was it um, intern year that stressed you? No, honestly, intern year outside of like one rotation was fine. Um, honestly, it wasn't even really like a stress thing. It was just more of an exhaustion thing. Like we talked about, was it the last podcast where we talked about doing 10 weeks of nights in a row? That just got really tiring and mentally, like just mentally drains you. It wasn't really stressful because I mean, like, you knew that you know at some point you were gonna get yelled at for doing something, or you just kind of accept it. Like, it, it is what it is. I, I stopped. You know, I stopped caring about that stuff like way early because you just kind of know what's gonna happen and you just deal with it. It's like, all right, cool, next, whatever. Um, but it was more of just like like the constant grind that just wears on you, and then like you just don't want to do anything after that or you, or if you try to do anything after that it just fails <laughs> so i didn't have any kids i didn't even have a family in residency so it was just like i don't know i don't know jay did you feel mentally beat up at some point 
Yeah, there are there are some stressful times in residency. Most, where, most know, of the times it was fine. Like if if you were on yeah. a, like a elective rotation or something, it was fine. Like, yeah, uh, but uh, like trauma got to you a little bit. Uh, you had a yeah. tough trauma rotation. Those hours were heavy. I was putting in a hundred hours a week, probably. Um, no ACGME violation, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I, was, I was putting in a lot of a lot of time. But um, I don't know. I told my wife when I started my trauma rotation, hey, I'm not going to see you for about two months, like ever. So, and she kind of accepted that. And, you know, there were nights when I, uh, man, we had inpatient censuses of 30 plus that I had around on. I would, I would walk to my car past midnight and uh, I knew I had to go to the hospital in about an hour and a half. And I would just take a nap in my car and walk back in the hospital. And uh, I don't know. It's weird. Like he was mentally, I just, told myself for the next two months this is what it's about and uh just get through and you know so i don't so that's, know that's the key right whenever you have to tell yourself that it's you temporary temporary yeah whenever you have to tell yourself that you know it's going to be one of those months yeah like oh it's only it's only 30 days you can do anything for 30 days that's the only way to get through it exactly you have to tell yourself this is set amount of time and I, I always wondered what happened if let's say you're on your last day it's like surprise your rotations are switched. You're doing it for two more months. <laughs> like at that point, you may hit like a breaking point, you know. But what always helped me too in residency is just going to to the gym and hanging out with you guys. Like you know, like basketball. You know, we made a habit mode to go to the gym yeah. multiple times a week, and it's just like it would have gone crazy without it. For for those time for those hours in the gym, when you're playing basketball, you're working out. All the all the stresses kind of fade to the back of your mind. And you don't you don't think about it, and then you feel so much better afterward. So, I, I'd strongly encourage keeping keeping whatever activities keep you sane. You know, during residency, that's that's kind of the key to it. So, yeah, I don't know about the the stress part. It's it's just more of just a like you just get beat up at points, and then you recover, and then you get beat up again. And it's different as an attending because you don't you choose the life that you want basically. So if you want to be super busy and beat yourself up, go ahead, but at least you're doing it to yourself and it's not someone else. I I think that was one of the biggest things that would just like make me really mad was that when I had to do what other people wanted to do and I didn't want to do it. Like, hey, let's wake up at two in the morning and go around on 25 patients and then sit around for three hours waiting for our cases to start. It's like, no, this is stupid. Like, why are we doing this? Um, but at least like, you know, when, it, when it's your patients and it's your job, you you can do it to yourself and you're fine with it. Like if I if they call me at 2 a.m. for a consult and I don't want to see it, I don't have to worry about getting yelled at in the morning because I can just go see it in the morning. And it, like, I know I can triage it in my head. I know it'll be fine for another four hours, whatever. I'm not going to, you know, get out of bed and drive 30 minutes to go see a consult that can wait. Um, but in residency, if I did that, I would get killed, right? So it's a little different. Um, yeah, it's what Jay said before. I guess you just have a little more control over your schedule and your life. So I don't know. It's, it's definitely definitely a better life coming out, I think. Ken, are you going to miss residency? Not at all. <laughs> Jay, do don't you miss residency? I'm back where I did it, so it's kind of the same in, mm. <laughs> in some ways. It's not the I, same as residency. Come on. I mean, the the one benefit of residency is that you get to, I mean, at least our, my class are doing a lot. You get to, you're operating with 
colleagues. I mean, it's kind of a lonely once you're in private practice, I would presume this, the few private folks that I've seen, it's basically you, 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 the, the tech and I kind of thing. Yeah. And no, it's definitely different. Definitely. Different. It's, it's, it, I think it, it may get lonely, right? You don't have a colleague to bounce ideas off of. You don't go to a workroom and then talk to a oh, bunch yeah. of other pros yeah. that understand what's going on. That's maybe hey, Mo, that's are you, are you, are you isolated up there, Mo? You're kind of yeah, by yourself. A little bit because I don't know anyone up here. So yeah. like, it's me. And, you know, if I need to vent, like before in residency, I would just go to you guys if I needed to vent. But now if I need to vent, I just either stew in my office or I like go to my PA's office and just like vent to him and yell at him for a little bit. And he gets it because he's he's usually on the same page as me. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's different because I moved up here with no connections to the area and I didn't know a single soul here. So like right now my best friends in the area are my scrub tech and my trauma rep. So <laughs> it's kind of my life right now. Yeah. Uh, my PA, my PA accounts too. He's pretty cool. Yeah. But yeah, there's no workroom. There's no like, like yeah. co-residents to go talk shit to. Like, I don't know. It's different. Uh, I, that's the one thing I miss about residency. I'll, I'll give you that. How much, do you, how much of your practice is elective right now? A lot of it actually. Uh, most really? of my stuff is elective. Yeah. Um, oh. Cause it's a small community hospital. So my trauma cases are maybe a few, a few a week probably like right now it's kind of it's icy up here so we i'm i'm doing like maybe one or two distal radiuses a week right now um surprisingly not a lot of ankle fractures or hip fractures it kind of dried up but um yeah a lot of it's just elective stuff at this point so that's pretty good but so i i had a weird situation though because i basically walked into uh i walked into a whole practice basically um, there was, there was one or two surgeons before me that were either semi-retired or completely retired and they just didn't have anyone here. So, and like the, the hospital I work at is situated basically right in the middle of Syracuse and Utica. So 30 minutes, both ways, which is kind of a, the patients in that area were going to either Syracuse or Utica. They weren't staying in the area. So I walked into a whole area with almost no competition and it was just me. So I've just, my practice built up pretty quick and now I'm booking like a month out um, for elective stuff. So it's kind of shoulders? annoying. I'm not, I'm doing shoulders. I'm not doing knees or hips right now. Um, I don't know if I'm going to start because honestly the volume hasn't been that much and I keep my indications pretty tight because it's not my favorite surgery in the world. So <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm going to start doing them, but uh, I'll do shoulders. Shoulders are fun. Yeah. I'll do some uh, total talus and total ankle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do one before me, I'll be really mad. <laughs> have you not done one yet? Uh, total ankle. Uh, I may or may not have one on the schedule. Um, oh. Total talus. You know, I would say for the next eight months, that's that's going to be a no go. <laughs> so <laughs> I think three D printing anything in your board collections is it would be highly suspect, <laughs> and uh, I would fail myself. <laughs> I, mean, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even sign up i'd be like yep we'll, we'll sign up next oh, year oh it's funny you say that though because on my reverses i've been using uh a, oh the custom yeah well kind of custom the, the psi uh, yeah the the glenoid the glenoid um basically it's a glenoid guide that they 3d print off the yeah. ct dj yeah, does it oh yeah psi is fine I think printing an implant is something different. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, that's yeah, that's different. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, have you guys used that, Ken? 
that uh, uh, I have it, not used the PSI here. I've heard about it and abused it's it pretty, like it's ones, but not like pretty cool. Deal. It's pretty cool. Um, I don't know if it makes a difference. I doubt it makes a difference or not. But especially when you're starting out and trying to get that glenoid position perfect, basically what they do is they 3D print a guide that hooks onto the coracoid and it just sits flush on the glenoid and it has a little hole where you put your drill hole or your, your uh, first pin. The peg. So, yeah. And yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going to make a difference in the long run, but when you're just starting out, it gives you a little bit of extra security that, you know, kind of shows you where the pin should be and guides you a little bit. I kind of like it. I don't know. I don't know how much more the cost is, honestly. Um, but it's you just get a CT scan, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I get a CT scan on all of them anyways. So yeah, I just changed, I changed the, yeah, I changed the protocol on the CT scan and uh, send yeah. it over to the company and they do it. So the implants are cool. Are on your, uh, on your total shoulders? I, I do mostly, unless it's totally obvious, I, I do. Um, yeah. The few that I've done haven't been totally obvious cup chair arthropathy. Like, um, so a lot of them are like prior repairs or like high grade partial tears that are pretty much full thickness with weakness. So um, I don't, I, you don't have to get them right. I mean, unless you want to, but I don't know for boards, I'll probably get both just to say I did. Do you think, Jay, Jay, do you think they'll judge you for getting too many studies? I asked Damon Dole that question. And, um, cause we had, yeah. we had, we had one trauma guy that remember would do like a pathologic workup on every hip fracture. Yeah. I'm like, should I be uh, doing that? <laughs> you know, I asked him, I, I gave him a few examples. Like, should I get MRI on, um, insertional Achilles tendonitis? And you know stuff like that. He said. Uh, he said, yeah, because it could change your your management if looking at the tendon. Oh, it's my son. There he oh, is. Hey, Jet. Um, but for some things that you don't need it, they they may wonder why you're getting it. So if you if you can justify getting it, then I think that's that's perfectly reasonable. If you can find some justification for it in terms of how it could change your management, but otherwise, uh, maybe a little difficult. Here's here's my little dude. He walked in. Say hi, Jet, to the world. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> All right, buddy, orthopedic. I don't know, Fine. surgeon, I guess. But All right. Um, so those are my thoughts on that. All right, Ken, uh, about a year ago, the job market was kind of rough because of COVID. Has that changed? I'm going to mute myself so I, you all can't hear my kid talk. Talk about the job market. Uh, I'm doing trauma, as uh, for those who care to know. Uh, that job market has always been relatively scarce, yeah. Because every I don't know why they do this, but every year you train a bunch of trauma surgeons, and there's not that many trauma jobs. Yeah. So it's like, are you trying uh, to stay academic? I mean, I'm willing. I I think it's very. Uh, there's not many academic jobs first and foremost. Um, there's just, that's the vast min minority yeah. of it. And then, uh, most of them are level two jobs now in terms of, if you're willing to go anywhere, you'll find a job for sure. Like, I mean, McAllen's hiring, uh, everywhere, anywhere is hiring. Mm -hmm. you just, how far are you willing to go to get a job is, I guess, the better, better way to say it. And COVID, I think I'm in a much better position than y where y'all were because no, ours was, ours was uh, terrible. I mean, Jay, Jay was set before it hit really. But yeah. I was so lucky when COVID hit and I had basically two offers pulled for, for that. 
So I don't know. I'm sure it's going to pick back up by the time you're ready to sign. I hope so. I mean, one of the things that makes it just a little bit changing a little bit, as I know a lot of people looked early, you know, that I had some, mm-hmm. had some people that told me like, oh, you can start looking right when you match or right when you're about to graduate. And that's, I feel like a little bit less of less pertinent now because of the ever-changing environment that COVID has made us in. But I think, at least for trauma, the jobs have always been a little bit scarce in the big cities, much like most other orthopedic things. Medical, all medical jobs in general suffer from poor uh, dispersion rather than actual a shortage. There's never been a shortage. It's just that everyone wants to live in BFE. Yep. And so, I mean, but I've accepted the fact that to do trauma, I may be living in BFE and then maybe commuting a long, long distance so that my family can have a better, a little bit less of that BFE lifestyle. Are you uh, geographically locked anywhere? Nah, I'm not, but yeah, you know, whatever we say on the podcast, but like I'm Chinese. I gotta be, I gotta be somewhere near some Chinese food. I mean, like, yeah. I, can't be, I can't be eating like, you know, casserole my whole, <laughs> like, that's your plan, bro. Huh? Yeah. So I mean, uh, and that's that's the geographical limit, right? Like I gotta be, you know, there's Chinese people everywhere, but you know, if I have to source, I have to sort drive an hour just to source some Chinese Chinese yeah. grocery, it's not gonna happen. Yeah, and the Chinese haircut as well. It's, it's clutch. Um, yeah, cut your own hair, Jay. A, are you using a recruiter or? I'm not. I mean, I I'm just looking online right now, and then. You know, I've looked a lot. I talked to a lot of people in this area, so I have a real idea of this how this area is. Um, I know Max is going through the exact same thing that I will be going through, so I'm using his. Basically, using any of his, any of the mistakes or anything that he knows, I'll. I'm just did did he sign that. yet? He's he has not. He's he's in the midst of looking. Uh, just to, like I know that. Uh, the the local level two around here, HJ Clear Lake, mm-hmm. was looking for a guy. They had just signed one, um, and then uh, he's looking at there's places. A lot of places are trying to level up. So there's one place in Dallas, one place in Waco, yeah. McAllen. I know that one of the trauma surgeons in the El, Texas Tech El Paso had left, so they're trying to come back. You know, one of our alumnus uh, from working all the way up in New York has been trying to has been knocking on some <laughs> doors around here. Uh, you know, huh? I haven't heard about this. Yeah, uh, I heard about it when I was operating with Dr. Lindsay, and he just took, he just picked up the phone. You know, you know how he be. Uh, but unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. I, I don't know. In general, I think there are jobs out there. It depends on how far you want to go to get there, and how much you want to take a blow to your pay cut. Just like Mo, you've talked about this. You know, you work for a little bit, le- a little bit to a lot less in a nicer area. Yeah. Versus pulling the pulling eight hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars if you live in uh middle of nowhere alaska or something yeah well you know the other interesting thing is like you said you can commute to some of those areas which is what a lot of people do like like my so i I mean my work in a community hospital is in a very small town in right in between two fairly decent sized cities but 30 minute drive i mean that's for you guys Mm -hmm. it's island of league city right so it's basically just living in league city and working on the island there's nothing Nothing too crazy. So, be, I mean, don't don't get thrown off if the hospital's in a 
terrible location, I'd say just look to see what's around it because if you could just drive a little bit, buy yourself a Tesla and just let the Tesla drive you to work and back, you'll be good. <laughs> and honestly, 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 with the way with the way everything's going in society, my advice would be just uh, find a job that's going to pay the bills early and lock yourself into a contract because I, reimbursement's only going down and uh, just don't saddle up with debt and get a job that's not going to pay for it. That would be my advice. Yeah. Try to keep my expenses to a minimum. So yeah. I'll, be, I'll be continuing to drive my Kia Rio <laughs> rather than my Tesla, <laughs> rather than get a Tesla. Yeah, I guess that was a little contradictory. Yeah, no shame at all. I still drive an old Toyota Camry. So, the, that blue one with the ketchup on the seat? No, it's a black one. It's actually my wife's little car. Uh, but there's, yeah. Ken, I don't know if you know this, but there's one time we went in Jay's car and he just had like <laughs> three plates in the back seat with ketchup just sitting on them. And, uh, dude, your car used to be, you used to not be able to sit in your car. Bro, like like I said, you can only you can be you can be you can't be a great surgeon, a great you know husband, a great you know father or whatever, and have a clean car. That's just asking too much, man. <laughs> That's just asking too much. You can only choose a few of them, so you know just accept it. <laughs> All right, hey Ken, I want you to tell one story that you're comfortable telling from your residency. Because you have so many. I'm not going to ask you all of them. I want to know just one story that you'd be comfortable putting on air. Um, I, I think the one story that I think that has made me most, most notorious in my particular residency program is the, quote, child abduction story. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> uh, and to all, and then basically the more, we'll start with the moral. The moral being... Don't mumble, communicate. <laughs> Don't mumble. <laughs> uh, and there are, the system will always beat the individual, no matter how good the intentions, no matter what happens, the system will always beat the individual. And the system is designed, will make individuals do certain things that maybe seem selfish or not because people have to protect themselves. And at the end of the day, everyone has to protect themselves. Everyone has a mortgage to pay and everyone has a family to go home to. And they will always protect themselves over another person. So that being said, the story goes, uh, 11 year old kid in the ER with the distal radius fracture that needed to be reduced. It was 100% displaced, nearing skeletal maturity. I think it had a reasonable indication for a close reduction. And I couldn't get conscious sedation for this patient and so I, uh, and the ER is saying that they were very busy and it would take a few hours. And at the time I was very aggressive. So I basically said, well, if you can't give me conscious sedation, I'm not going to have this family wait here. So then I called up my buddy in anesthesia saying, hey, can you hook me up? Can you just give me conscious sedation? And he's like, yeah, sure. But you just have to roll them up to, to the PACU area. And we'll just do it in the block room. And I was like, oh, that seems reasonable. So then I, with the family and with the patient there, I take them and then I, I sit and I tell the nurse there saying like, hey, I'm gonna take this person to get reduced, okay? And I just, that's all I say. I just say, I'm, this person's gonna get reduced. I'm gonna take them, I'm gonna take them up to pack you to get reduced, okay? 
I had no idea what was right or what was wrong. I just said, I'm going to take and, and all I heard was, okay. So then I take him up with the family. Uh, we put her under, we get, we get a good reduction. We cast her, blah, 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 bye, valve. Great. And uh, we get to pack, we get to sending them out. And then I, uh, because of the uh, logistics of, the, of our EMR, the case had to be made or else this could, it couldn't be discharged. Because mm-hmm. what I was going to do is I was, I was going to roll her back down to the ER and just have them go away from there. But when I went back down to the ER to say like, oh, can I just send them back down to you? There were about four or five nurses there. Uh, some of the nursing administrators, the ER attending who was presuming over the patient. And the first word they said to me was, what did you do with this child? Where did you take them? And I was like, oh, I took them up there, blah, blah, blah. They got reduced, everything's happy. And like, why did you, we, we refused to accept any uh, any any responsibility for this what, this, what you did with this kid because this was out of our supervision because uh, for all intents and purposes, we had no idea where you went. We called the code pink. Oh man. And so we, we're and so for all intents and purposes, you you have abducted this child, and how dare you do this to this child? And I was like, well, I mean, and then so for about five to ten minutes in front of other patients, they kept saying, "Why did you do this? You're terrible. You knew you were doing something wrong." And then I was like, well, I told the nurse that I was going to go up there, and then the nurse who I made eye contact with saying. You ne- I never did a verbal feedback to you saying that I was okay with the situation. And I just turned my head and I was like, what's going on? He's like, you know, because I didn't do verbal feedback, I, he wrote down in the chart, he thought I was going to radiology. So then he said like, oh, I wrote down in the chart, you were going to radiology. You duped me. You tricked oh me. God. And I was like, what and i was just i'm just confused at this point because and I, I was like uh and so it keeps going on literally 10 minutes of in front of other patients just bam 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 how dare you you're nothing without us nurses you are nothing how dare a doctor think he can roll without a nurse's permission this is verbatim uh and uh and just on and on and then eventually i just say you know, the patients impact you. I, I, what do you want me to do? I, I, I just need to get them home. Like you can yell at me all you want, but I just need to get them home. They're like, we don't res- accept any responsibility. So that's when I had to create a case to say that just to physically by EMR, get them out of the hospital, I had to create a, a surgical case for the patient to discharge them. So then I personally discharged them. However, what I didn't know was my faculty was on board collection at the time. I did call him. I was just like, hey, by the way, I just I just have to do a conscious sedation. Uh, hopefully you, this is not a big deal, okay? And, he's, and he didn't, he was a new faculty at the time. He didn't realize that I didn't realize what was about to go down. And so basically what ended up happening was the following. I, they said that I knowingly staffed a surgical case by myself and timed out without faculty for and and stole a uh, stole a pediat, uh, pediatric patient in order to do so, so there were some apparently there were 
the OR manager got involved. I know the ACG and me person got involved. People were asking about pressing charges because I was acting in a very, because there's no, it's basically knowingly negligent and knowingly, the, the whole purpose of the, of the, their thing was that you were knowingly doing something wrong and you have a track record of doing something wrong. Luckily at that point, because I had told them, I was like, oh, I did this before. No one seemed to care. I just brought them back. Yeah. And then there was like, oh, if you did this before, that means you knowingly were doing something wrong and therefore you are committing something. So then there was talk about pressing charges. Who, from the ER or from the patient? It seems like the patient was satisfied. Yeah. Oh, the patient, the, the, so yeah. it's you know, very nice family. They were a very nice family. They just, they just left, they're like, oh, bye. And then so just, the ER wanted to press charges against you. Uh, it was the OR because oh, I was OR. Uh, ER and OR and ACGME. Blackwell had like kind of dropped that hint. Hmm. Um, and like it wasn't like ever like fully like I think it may have been just like a threat, but it was uh, from what I understand that was part some there was a little bit of that play in it as the, as to just to just justice for the people to understand the severity of what I did wrong, basically. Um, and so that was, and so basically I remember that time, uh, Jay took me off to the side and said, you are in some deep shit. You need to <laughs> not do anything right now. Yeah. I think I gave you, a was like, you need to, yeah. Have, you know, foreman and uh, our program director and our, chairman who have done did a lot to help me out in that situation were basically like because one of my colleagues recently had a similar situation where he's had an hr situation but he had to go <laughs> to the meetings uh but he for, the surgeries went so well without him i know he listens yeah. to this podcast so <laughs> for, for me though they were Jay, like, you had to tell me this story at the end yeah for me they're like we know how you talk you don't talk don't talk to anyone just <laughs> just don't respond and just stay away. And so for about, it all blew over because like a lot of things, they're all false claims and to go, to actually go through with something. And Oh yeah, you actually have evidence and stuff. Well, also the good thing is institutional inertia brought this problem to me, but institutional inertia also makes it hard <laughs> to deal with me yeah. because I'm, yeah. So it works both ways sometimes. And I think that was the, that's probably my most infamous story. So did you get in any trouble after all well, that? Did you get in any trouble after all that? No, that was the, that was the best part is like, cause there was, went away. It, it was the most, like, you know, our chairman, he is yeah. the best at making well, problems. I was on his service when it happened. I was, I was running the, the TDC spine clinic and he, he strolls in like, you know, way past when he usually does. He's like, Oh, he's Mo, you'll never believe it. They want to take Ken Lam away for kidnapping. And I'm like, what? Oh, you know how they are. And he just, he gets on the phone, he walks away and I'm like, what? <laughs> what did you do, Ken? Yeah. yeah. I, this is a really fascinating story. It's really a microcosm of the institution. 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 And Mike would be proud. But um, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of kind of lessons and, and points in this. And yeah, I think me calling Kenny, you know, afterward, I just, I don't know if I helped or not, but I just wanted to let you know, like, you know, that, you know, I had, I had your back when I was thinking about you. I just wanted you to kind of be safe. Um, but in terms of like points to this, just like you said, there may, there's going to be times as resident where you, you're pulled to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, 
just for patient care. And it, that should always be our, our leading guide, so to speak. But we're, we cannot beat the institution and there's going to be rules and obstructions. And um, I, don't, I don't know if we're always, we can't do anything to compromise patient care, that's for sure. But as a single resident, without the support of attendings or faculty, we can't really overcome the institutional hurdles, you know, and, and if we try, it could always, it could always come back to hurt us. And that's, that's just kind of the way it is, unfortunately. And, um, and the other thing too, just a lesson about administrators, you know, I'm, I don't really want to talk too much about administrators that, that'll get me in trouble, but um, you know, I really wish that people in charge would care more about patients. So we wouldn't have these kinds of hurdles instead of worrying so much about the bottom line and, and the dollar and, and outcomes on paper. So, so those are really my, my two main thoughts, you know, as a resident, you know, as, as much as it, may, as it may pain you, um, you still have to play within the rules, you know, and you know, it may be hard to do, but we, you don't really have a lot of power. So it kind of sucks. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's, even as an attending, like you still, it's tough. Like you still have to play by their rules, you're still playing their game, but you can still play it a little bit. Does that make sense? Like, for example, I have block time every Monday, right? So I had five cases and they released the block time every week. And for next week, they booked some general surgery case at the end of my block time. And I tried to book a distal radius today for Monday. And they said, no, you don't have any block time. Someone's already filled it. So I'm like, what the heck? Like, you know, I was pissed off. So I, I mean, I can't make a scene. So what do I do? I changed the time for my disradius from one and a half hours to 30 minutes. So I fit it in my block time so that I can get my case in before the other guy goes. You just got to play by the rules, right? I mean, if, if they're going to play by that, you got to, you got to play too. Um, I don't, I, mean, I don't think you did anything wrong. I think you just got caught because of a glitch in the yeah. system. Exactly. Right. I mean, and then everyone starts freaking out. Everyone's always looking for a villain too, and a scapegoat. Yeah. And if there's anything that could possibly go wrong, they're they're gonna find someone to put all the blame on, and you just happen to be that person at that time. And I was gonna I was gonna write a book with Mo about the rules of residency, and and somewhere in the top two or three was was not trusting anyone, and you know it just sucks because you think everyone's on the same team trying to help the patient out when. They're actually looking for a well, scapegoat at like, time. You know, all those nursing notes that are just basically them covering themselves, saying that, yeah. that they, like, page, doctor, whatever, at this time didn't pick up. Page, doctor, again, at this time yeah. didn't pick up. It's I used just, to go I used to go back in the next morning and put notes next to their notes <laughs> saying, I did not get any phone calls from this patient regarding this note. None of these went through. Just to, I mean, if they're going to play that game, I'm going to play that game, too. If they want to just flood the chart with documentation just to cover themselves i'll do it too i, I mean i got time to kill why not i don't have a, i don't have a baby to go home to <laughs> i got all day i could be petty yeah yeah no, no. yeah that's that's i think at the end of the day just like what it says everyone's got a family to go home to and and no one wants to no one ever wants to be at the end of the end of the chopping block so they'll do whatever is in their power and, and people can change faces very quickly <clears throat> in order to keep themselves out of the chopping block. And uh, that's just the way it is. I don't really, I don't, I've seen those, all the people who were yelling at me before I've, I've 
talk to them. They're we're, we're chill. There's no there's no wrongdoing. I think it's not the it's not the individual. It's very seldom the individual. It's usually the pressure is borne out from the institution. Uh, institution. Institution. Yeah. That 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 basically pushes the individual to, and and any certain individual into a direction that is a little bit less savory. It, it's I mean it's it's weird because you were just trying to do what's best for the kid, right? Yeah. It all starts with no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. Now you got your own doing the right so. thing and doing the right thing. So yeah. <laughs> don't trust anyone, even yourself. And uh, now you have your own kids. So you don't need to abduct anymore. Uh, <laughs> all right, Ken. Thanks for spending right, time with us. Can, can we ask you what your favorite bone is? Uh, I have a favorite portion of a bone, actually. It'd be pro the proximal femur. Why is that? Because it fails so often. Yeah, it gives me business. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, it's a it's a the area the hip is a very is a very awesome area of the body. It's got all the anatomy, all important anatomy behind it. That all the dissections are fantastic. It's my favorite portion of the body to operate on. So that's why the acetabulum is is annoying because you can never get enough fixation to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> You know, you can't, there's not enough good fixation. You put a 14 millimeter screw through a, through a proximal femur, that stuff holds. You can't put a three, five screw, can't hold jack. You know? <laughs> <laughs> What's he going to say next? <laughs> What's he going to say next? Uh, you know, you know, you know, you know, I say, you know, what, what do you have to put in, uh, uh, in pelvises? Cannulated screws. And you, you all know how, how I be about cannulated screws. No, I don't. I, I forgot. It's been a while. So. <laughs> what do you think about cannulated screws? <laughs> All right, all right. Very good. I think we all know what we <laughs> Okay. All right. Thanks for tuning in. All right. See you, Kenny. All right. See you later. And that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you guys for listening. I promise we are back this time. We will start putting out our podcast more regularly now that I have internet and a home. Uh, if you guys like what we're doing, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to catch any of our other episodes... Uh, any of our other 32 episodes, you can do so at our website, orthotalkpod.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, hit up our Twitter at orthotalkpod or shoot us an email, theorthopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys for listening. Hope you guys enjoy it. And we will see you back next week. Thank you for the opportunity.